Once again, we come in our studies to the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 2 this morning. I want to begin by reading the verse that we covered in our last sermon. The last sermon we preached from Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. In our last sermon, we considered Adam's vocational duties, which are outlined in this verse. We are told that God gave him two tasks. First, he was to tend or to cultivate the garden, and second, to keep or to protect the garden. And we saw that this gives us a theological foundation for caring for creation. And we also are challenged to imitate the creativity and the care of our God. And we also noted that the fact that these two words that are used for Adam's vocation are also used of the Levites and the priests in the work of the temple, we are reminded that everything that we do is to be like temple worship. It is to be that which we do in the sight of and in the presence of God. And so having then considered Adam's vocational duties in our last sermon, this morning we're going to look at his spiritual duties. And these spiritual duties are all wrapped up in a simple command. And the question that comes, and we are breathlessly waiting as if we were reading this for the first time, is he going to obey this command or is he going to disobey this command? Well, we read of that command in verses 16 and 17. Please follow along. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that as we hear these ominous words concerning what would happen if The first man disobeyed. We do thank you that having heard these words of death that is to come to those that disobey, we do thank you that life has come to us through the one who obeyed, even our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray even now, though, that you would keep us in that way in which you placed us. We pray that you would help us to learn to obey you and not to question your word, not to seek to a skirt around it, we pray that you would teach us to have a sacred reverence and holy fear of you as expressed in your commandments. We pray that your spirit would help us to do this. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Perhaps there is no crime that is more frequently committed than disobedience to God. And if you've not repented of your sins, you've not put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are living in a constant state of disobedience. It's not just here and there you disobey, but you are living in disobedience. Or perhaps if you are a believer, there's maybe some area of your life in which you are living in disobedience, even now. And if you're living in disobedience, this is a very serious matter. And why is it so serious? Well, think of it. You are God's creature, and you're not rendering obedience to the one who made you. Now, you wouldn't keep a dog that was never responded in, in obedience to you. If you had a dog that never came when you whistled, if you had a dog that never quit biting people and snarling at people every time they come to your house, you wouldn't keep that dog, would you? And if you had a dog, for instance, and you were a soldier in enemy territory and you had that dog trained to sniff out explosives or maybe you're a border guard and you're having a dog that trains trained to sniff out drugs if that dog just disobeyed you never did any of those things would you keep that dog what would you do you wouldn't would you but our disobedience is worse we disobey the god that made us in ephesians 2 2 paul writes about those who walk and he speaks about the way in which they walk underneath the power and the direction of Satan himself. 
And he describes Satan as the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. And so as we begin our study of these two verses in Genesis chapter 2, I just want you to ask yourself a question. Is this a description of you? Are you a son of disobedience? Do you live in disobedience to God? This is a serious question. Now in the verses that we just read, Moses teaches us that man was the governor of this world with one exception. He must be a subject to God. And a simple law was imposed upon him that was going to be a token of this submission. And the prohibition against eating from a certain tree, this was a test of Adam's obedience. Abstinence from that tree, it was the first lesson in obedience. And obedience to this one command was a test as to whether or not Adam would regard God as the director and Lord of his life. Our text divides itself easily into two parts. And we're not going to spend equal time on these two parts. We're going to spend most of our time actually on the second part. But in the first place, in verse 16, there is an ample provision. And then in the 17th verse, there is a simple provision prohibition. Our first heading, therefore, is based on what we have in verse 16, an ample provision. Let's read that verse again. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Now remember the setting of this word. Adam has just been placed in a lush garden that's not only filled with beautiful plants but also the provision of every nutritional need. In addition to every tree being good for food, God provided every tree that is pleasant to the eyes. He created what was pleasant and beautiful to look at, utilizing a tremendous variety of color, no doubt, and form. And this is why the name Eden means pleasure or delight. There was this pleasantness of taste and of of appearance. Now, when you and I go to a fancy restaurant, and about the only time my wife and I have been able to do that is if we get some kind of a fancy coupon or something like that. But one of the things that you expect when you go into a a four- or five-star restaurant is something that is extra special about the way the food is presented. It's it's artistically set upon your, 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 your plate. It's not like what you would expect if you were in a mess line in the army where the food is just glopped on everybody's tray and piled on top of each other. doesn't matter how it looks. You just eat it and you get on with it. Now, in the garden, God provided food that was nutritious, delicious, and even beautiful in its presentation. And then to make the banquet even better, he gave incredible variety what they could eat. It was like a huge all-you-can-eat buffet in Las Vegas, famous for its variety and size and presentation even. More than Adam could possibly sample in one meal. So God points to this lavish, extravagant abundance of the garden. And he says, welcome to the banquet that I have prepared for you. Eat to your heart's content. Except for that one tree that's over there, you can eat everything that's here. Adam and Eve have free run of the place, you see. It's theirs to use and enjoy without constraint, except for one tree. Everything was there for him. Everything he could possibly want. Now, when we get to chapter 3, we're going to see that the serpent discreetly avoids any reference to this ample provision, this generous provision. Instead of magnifying the generosity of God, He magnifies God's prohibition. And this is the exact opposite of what we have here in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. The contrast between what God says to us and what Satan says to us, it it is just as stark. Our God is not a miserly Scrooge. 1 Timothy 6, 17 tells us he gives us all richly all things to enjoy. And Satan, though, in our own hearts... They try to suggest that we just can't be happy if we don't, if we just stick to what God says we can partake of. And if we, 
We've got to take what's forbidden to really be happy. And the world and the flesh and the devil, they try to convince us that the greatest pleasures you can ever have are in the things that God has forbidden. And there's so much that you're missing out on if you don't do it. So many rules keep you from all, all the joy and all the pleasure that you might, might have. And so Satan and the world, they lead us to think that God is the great chill, kill joy of the universe. He tantalizes before us things that he then forbids. And, and, and we can't enjoy them. And then he puts up his signs in front of everything, all the wonderful things that we can partake of. He folds his arms and he says, nope, you can't have any of it. That's the picture you see. Satan wants a picture of God. And this is especially the case with young people. Often with you, it's not so much that you think that God is a killjoy, but it's the preacher that's the killjoy. It's your Sunday school teacher. It's your parents that are ruining your life. And you're tempted to think that with everything that's out there that's fun, your parents and your pastors they just stand in front of it all. They fold their arms. They got a scowl on their face and say, nope, you can't have any of it. That boyfriend's not good for you. Stay away from that friend of yours. Don't listen to that music. Don't go to that R-rated movie. Don't wear that revealing dress. Don't, it might attract the wrong kind of a guy. Stay off of Twitter. It's evil. Stay away from that chat group. And out of love for your souls, you see, at times, they could get overzealous and try to even put extra fences up, maybe that wouldn't be wise. But in all, they want to keep you from destroying yourself. And they don't want you to go to hell. And that's why they say these things to you. That's why they want to stand between what you want to do to destroy yourself and to keep you from it. And Satan would tempt you to think that they're just trying to take everything away from you. That's what Satan does. You remember with Eve and with Adam. That's the way he portrays it all. And all the good, wholesome things that God has made available, he tries to make them seem like they are nothing to you. He magnifies what God forbids and what God's representatives in your life try to discourage. And then he tries to minimize the many good things that God has given you to enjoy. And so God says to you, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. And Satan tries to make what God offers to look like it's nothing. And so in verse 16, we have an ample provision that Satan tries to present as a stingy provision. But now notice, after the ample provision described in verse 16, we come to verse 17, where we have a simple prohibition. Now, a prohibition is a negative command. You shall not do such and such. And I've chosen this word deliberately. A prohibition tells us what we must not do. Now, what we read in this creation account about all the other ordinances are positive. And this command, it differs from the other ordinances in that it tells Adam and Eve what they must not do. The one thing they must not do. Now, Adam and Eve, they couldn't complain that God's command was vague. They can't complain that it's really a complicated issue. We couldn't quite figure this out, what you told us to do, God. They were all confused about this issue here. They could complain that way. And they could complain, you see, that it just seems like a little tidbit of advice that you're just giving us a little recommendation. Well, maybe we'll just, we'll just try it out once or twice, you know, and maybe we'll find out for ourselves. No. The very way that God frames this prohibition, it makes it stand out. And he even warns them of the severe consequences if they disobey. And so there's no way that after disobeying God, Adam could say, well, if only I had known. If only you had made things a little bit plainer. Uh, oh, Lord. It was a plain, simple, unmistaken prohibition. And with reference to this simple prohibition, allow me to point out two things. There are two parts to this prohibition. And here we have, first of all, a prohibited tree, and then secondly, a pretentious consequence. First of all, there is here a prohibited tree. Now, one of the ways that God made this prohibition prominent is emphasized in verse 9. If you look back to verse 9, we read there, 
the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's two prominent trees and they're set in a particularly prominent location. They're in the center of the garden. And one of these trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it was set there to train Adam through the exercise of obedience to the word of God. And the tree of life was there to transform his earthly existence into a spiritual essence of eternal life. And so these two trees, they were almost like they were sacramental trees, symbolic of two things that God had purposed for them. And they received their names from their relationship to man, from the effect the eating of them would result in, would produce. The tree of life that holds out the promise that if at some point its fruit would produce eternal life, immortal life. Not necessarily that there's something magical about it that gives life, but it was associated with, with God giving eternal life unto Adam and Eve. And the tree of knowledge, it was in the center of the garden to teach men this whole issue of the knowledge of good and evil. If they would refrain from it, it would impart the knowledge of everything that's good. And if they would partake of it, it would result in the terrible experimental knowledge of everything evil. Now, the tree of life, it was symbolic of life. We can infer that this is the case because it has suggested that they had not yet partaken of it, and they might have partaken of it. In chapter 3 and verse 22, when they are being cast out of the garden, we read that the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And so he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It's a picture you see of the fact that there would have been everlasting life. At some point, we don't know when this would have taken place, where he would have been confirmed in eternal, immortal life. But he failed the test. He partook of the wrong tree. It's natural for us to infer that if Adam had continued, though, in obedience, he would have entered somehow into the state of eternal life. And this is depicted in the book of Revelation. It's amazing how many things are in the book of Genesis are found in the book of Revelation. But we read in Revelation chapter 22 of the tree of life that was planted on both sides of the river flowing with the water of life. And then in chapter 22 and verse 14, we read, Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life. We will have a right if we've been in Christ, if we've been his people, to partake of that tree that Adam and Eve came to the place where they had no longer a right to partake of it. Now with reference to this tree of life, Calvin writes, I think, with great perception, God intended that man, as often as he tasted the fruit of that tree, should remember whence he received that life, in order that he might acknowledge that he lives not by his own power, but by the kindness of God alone, and that life is not an intrinsic good, but proceeds from God. Now we don't need to assume that this tree contains some kind of a substance that prevented aging or death, a physical kind of life, but like the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, it was symbolic. It symbolized life, the kind of life that could only come from God, the kind of life that's to be enjoyed to the full in communion and fellowship with God. So this was the tree of life, but there was also another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was a real tree, but symbolic. In its name, the name of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it doesn't indicate that this fruit possessed some kind of special ingredients you see, that would increase a person's brain power. You know, as there, or, you know, as we watch the news at night, it's old people who watch the news. So all the ads are pitched to old people like us. And so 
Um, there's always this ad that comes on for Prevagen. You're going to be able to remember everything now if you take Prevagen. Maybe some of you have seen that advertisement. Well, that's not what we have here. It's not a pill that supposedly helps older people remember things. Not some kind of a supernatural Prevagen. But what then does this tree symbolize? Well, first of all, what about this phrase, good and evil? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, the only other passage in the five books of Moses where this phrase, knowledge of good and evil, is found, it's used of children that can't be held accountable for their actions. In Deuteronomy, in chapter, I'm not saying the children are not responsible for sin or anything like that, but in this particular case, they were not responsible for the decision. In Deuteronomy 139, right before they entered the promised land, Moses reminds the Israelites of what the Lord said to those that refused to believe God's promise and therefore were sentenced to be in, in the wilderness and all die, every one of them, and, and wander around for 40 years in the wilderness until they all died off. And among the things that the Lord said to the unbelieving Israelites was this, Moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. So in that text, in Deuteronomy 139, this phrase, the knowledge of good and evil, it's used to describe those that didn't have the knowledge and therefore could be held accountable in the same way for this unbelieving decision about whether to go into the promised land or not. A little two-year-old toddling around, he had no idea about what Caleb's report was like and what the unbelieving spy's report was like. He didn't have the perception of these things, and so he was not held accountable for it. And because they're not accountable for the unbelief of their parents, they are allowed into the promised land. But on the other hand, those who were held accountable, they knew what they were doing. The knowledge of good and evil, therefore, it refers to people that make a moral choice, knowing full well the choice that they make is sinful. When Adam ate of the forbidden fruit, he knew full well what he was doing. It was contrary to God's command. In a similar way, in Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 3 and verse 9, his prayer that he might be able, quote, to discern between good and evil, it envisions the capacity to be able to make the correct decisions when confronted with two alternatives, good and evil. And regarding this command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam was presented with a clear-cut moral choice. In 1 Timothy 2.14, Paul says that Adam was not deceived when he ate the forbidden fruit. He knew what he was doing. He knew full well that what he was doing was a violation of God's command. And of course, after he had eaten, he knew experientially and on a deeper level, the awful nature of his decision that he has just made. As Augustine observes, after Adam had sinned, he saw and felt not only what good he had lost, but also what great misery he had been hurled into through his disobedience. But even before he sinned, he was confronted with a moral choice. And with his eyes wide open, he chose to disobey God's command. Now, what was the essence of the evil of this disobedience? Well, the essence of Adam's sin was that it was an act of moral autonomy. People that are autonomous, they do things independent of everybody else. They're, they're their own autonomous person, we say. And the issue was deciding what's good and right without reference to God's will. An autonomous decision, not a submissive decision, submitting to what God says is right and wrong. In Ezekiel 28, a parallel is drawn between the sin of Adam and the sin of the king of Tyre. And in that place, the essence of the sin of the king of Tyre is that he set his heart as the heart of a god. And using poetic language, Ezekiel says that this king of Tyre, he was in Eden, the garden of God, and that for his sin he was going to be expelled. It's symbolic, you see, of what kind of sin this particular king committed. And he was expelled for having behaved as if he was God, for the sin of behaving with radical moral autonomy. 
Adam and Eve desired wisdom, you see, but they sought for it outside the will of God. They usurped God's role in determining right and wrong. And by refusing Adam and Eve the right to eat of this tree, God was indicating that he alone is autonomous. He alone makes the decisions for himself. Human beings are not to live independently of God. He alone, God alone, is the lawgiver. And all moral choices must be made with reference to his commands. Now this is the great temptation for all of us today. Attempting to determine right from wrong apart from God's word. This is the essence of disobedience. And this is intensified by postmodernism in our day, a philosophy that centers authority in the autonomous self. And this is what, maybe you don't understand all this fancy talk about postmodernism, but you've probably heard this phrase, your truth. And you've got, you've got your truth and I've got my truth. And it's this idea that we can all create each, our, our own truths. And that based on my truth, I decide what's right and wrong. And I'll live according to what my truth says. And it might be different from what your truth is. And as a result, we are living in a society in which there's no moral absolutes anymore. And so if you're in charge of immigration, it doesn't matter what the law says. You just create your own truth. You do whatever you want to do. If you're a district attorney, you just decide for yourself whether you're going to enforce a law and whether you're not going to enforce a law. And as a result, we're living in a lawless country that is filled with moral chaos. Now, in earlier generations in our country, well, there was a basic understanding of moral absolutes. But for the last hundred plus years, we have been saying, we will do very well as we please. And this revolt is what is behind the whole German society in making peace with the idea of exterminating the Jews. They convince themselves, they harden themselves into the idea that these are inferior people that just need to be gotten rid of. This is what's behind the slogan, my body, my choice. I'm perfectly free to decide what's, whether or not to let this little baby live in my, heart, in my womb or not. That's my truth. That's my body. Not too long ago, J.L. Mackey wrote a book. There was this title, Ethics, Inventing Right and Wrong. Dear ones, this is exactly what took place back in the garden. Adam invented his whole idea of what's right and wrong. He decided on this path of moral autonomy that it was up to him to invent right and wrong. And dear ones, we are not autonomous beings. We cannot just invent right and wrong. Now, before we move on to the next portion of our text, I want to say a few things by way of practical application. And first of all, we have here a true test. What is the true test of right and wrong? The test is simply this. What is the expressed will of God? Adam was expected to abstain from the forbidden fruit simply on account of the fact that it was forbidden by God. God gave him a simple command. So simple, Adam could never complain that there was some ambiguity about what God expected. And this simple command was a simple test as to whether he would continue in the spirit of a little child to submit to and receive the instructions of his heavenly father. And the fact that this command was about something that seemed so insignificant, just eating fruit from one tree, that seems like a little thing. This makes it, you see, an easy command to obey. But it was the question, is Adam going to obey God's word? The temptation itself was very small. Adam had all the rest of the trees to eat from. He couldn't plead, you see, that he was starving, and you see, like some kind of a guy that robs the store of bread, and he doesn't have any bread, and therefore he pleads with the judge, you see, well, I was about to die, my family was about to die, and so I just, I just went in there and got a loaf. He had everything Adam did. He couldn't plead any such thing. In itself, you see, it was an easy command. And because it was so easy, his disobedience stands out all the more. This is why Paul calls it disobedience. 
in Romans 5.19. Disobedience, plain and simple. Here, therefore, you see in this passage is a true test. Here's the test of what you, will do, what you do. What did God say? What did God forbid? What did God command? A very simple, true test. But then also here in this place is true submission. Submission is expected. God so constructed the command that he gave to Adam that everything all boiled down to this issue. Is Adam going to submit to God's will or not? Is he going to submit? Is he going to obey what God said, whether he understands all the reasons for it or not? You see, God put Adam over the animals. He made Adam, in a sense, the king and the Lord over creation. But he wanted Adam to understand that he's not the ultimate king. He doesn't have ultimate dominion. He is under the authority of God, the God who made him. And the God that put him in this well-furnished house and planted, and gave him this, as it were, this beautiful, fruitful garden, he just keeps back one tree from him to let Adam see and know that it's the Lord, the God that, he, that made him, that is the owner of all things. There's a test, you see, of true submission. Now, our generation refuses to obey God, especially when God's word runs contrary to popular opinion. God, for instance, has assigned certain roles for the husband and the wife in marriage. And this isn't a gray area that's really complicated. You've got to get a doctor's degree in theology and study Greek and Hebrew and be able to wade through all these complicated commentaries to figure out what the role of men and women are in the home and in the church. It's just not that complicated, is it? It's really plain when you read what the Bible has to say. And those that rebel against this order, they demonstrate that they simply don't want to submit to God's word. That's the issue. It's not that it's so complicated, we can't figure it out. And the same thing is true about same-sex relationships. It's a crystal clear issue in God's word. And the reason why men refuse to receive Christian teaching in this matter is not because the scriptures are not plain about, about the whole issue. They argue that it would be cruel for God to allow them to be attracted to, uh, to another person and then, then forbid it. But again, the issue is simply a matter of simple obedience. And in the same way, when it all comes down to a matter of submission for you and me, that's the issue. What are your besetting sins? Is it perhaps feasting your eyes on that which would defile your soul? Is it speaking evil of others? Or putting other matters ahead of leading in family worship? I want you to think about this. Stop excusing yourself, saying you can't help it. Stop that. Stop saying, well, this is just a really difficult thing because of the way you put me together, God. The issue all boils down to this. Are you going to obey God or not? That's the issue. Are you going to submit? Or are you going to behave as if you're the king and you're the one that gets to create, you see, your own truth and your own rules? So here we have true submission, true test, true submission, but also we have here true liberty. God restricted Adam and Eve from eating of a single tree. This wasn't a harsh restriction. Instead, it was a symbol of the fact that crossing God's boundaries enslaves rather than liberates. Men and women, they rebel against God's restrictions, and they think that they're free when they rebel. But their so-called freedom without boundaries that all too quickly becomes bondage. And here's the paradox of freedom. True liberty is only true liberty when it's within certain boundaries. Take that little goldfish that you have in the goldfish bowl. He sees you walking around in the room. He maybe sees your little parakeet flying around. And he says, oh, it'd be so great if I could just jump out of this bowl and, and do all those things that are out there. He thinks he's in bondage, you see, being cooped up in that little bowl that, he's, that he has there. But if he were to jump out, he would find out that that so-called liberty is bondage. He wouldn't be able to, to breathe. He wouldn't be able to, to go anywhere or fly around. 
He would, in this so-called newfound freedom, it wouldn't last very long. And so it's true freedom. It can only be for that goldfish by living in certain watery boundaries. And refusing to submit to God's commands, it leads to bondage, dear people, not freedom. God has set certain boundaries in the home. He set certain boundaries in the state, certain boundaries in the church. The church is to be governed a certain way. He expects it to be run in such and such a way. Worship is to be according to such and such a way. It's not up to us to just make it up as we go along. There's liberty, you see, about some things that God has not spoken to, but where God has spoken, we do not have liberty to do what we think would be the right thing or what we think to what, or to what others would forbid. Well, so much for the prohibited tree. Now, in the last half of verse 17, we have a pretentious consequence. The first part is the prohibited tree, but then the second part of this prohibition is this consequence. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, this word pretentious, it's synonymous with ominous. But I had to stick with the P's, you know. We've got to do that as preachers. We've got to stick with these letters. That's what we've got to do for some silly reason. We do that kind of thing in our sermons. But important, that's what this pretentious is related to. It's an omen that something disastrous is about to happen. That's exactly what we have here. God plainly told Adam of a disaster the disaster of all disasters if he doesn't obey. No greater disaster ever happened than this. He told Adam that disobedience in this simple matter, it would be a capital crime. And disobedience, it would result in an immediate death sentence. Now the last part of verse 17 literally reads this way. In the day of your eating from it, dying you shall die. Now, the Hebrew idiom, dying and you shall die, that's the way it would literally be translated. It, it literally means it, it's, it's for certain. It's absolutely certain. It's put in here by way of emphasis, you see. This phrase is also found in 1 Kings 2, verses 37 and 42, where Shimei is threatened with death, and then it's threatened, quote, on the day that you go forth and cross the brook Kidron. You go forth out of the city and you cross this brook. That day you, you, you die. And the next few verses in Second, First Kings show that he, he could not possibly actually have been executed on that day that he exited the house. So the, the phrase on the day you do this, that you're going to die, it's underscoring so much the certainty of Shimei's death, not its chronology. Now, the last part of verse 17 in our text, it literally reads, In the day of your eating from it dying, you, you shall die, therefore. But some have supposed that this threat means on the day that you eat of it, you're going to become mortal. And this interpretation assumes that God created Adam immortal. But this is something that's contrary to the book of not only Genesis, but the rest of the Bible. 1 Timothy 6.16 tells us that only God has in himself immortality. And in no Old Testament text does the Hebrew phrase matamu, die you shall die, does it mean become mortal or lose your immortality? Well, altogether, this Hebrew idiom, it's used 12 times, 12 other places in the New Testament, Old Testament. Now, we don't have time to go through those 12 texts. In two places, the death sentence is threatened by a human being. And when the death sentence is pronounced, for instance, against Jeremiah, when a death sentence is pronounced by Saul on his son Jonathan, in both cases the death sentence was overturned and it was not carried through. And in three places in Ezekiel, the threat of death comes from God, though. But in those places, in those three places, it's implied that repentance would avert that sentence. You do the wrong thing, but if you repent, then you won't die. Now, from the rest of Scripture, we know that the death that was threatened, it had two dimensions to it. First of all, immediately, the seeds of physical decline and death were in his body and in all of his descendants. 
Romans 5 especially stresses the physical aspect of death. We get older. We get more and more decrepit. One of the first things that started looking old on me is the wrinkles on my hands. It just reminded me, this is where I'm headed. I'm, 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 I'm headed not to the fountain of youth. I'm headed to a different direction, you see, physically speaking. And this is the way we all are. We're dying the day we're born. And secondly was spiritual death. And this immediately took place. And this was the worst part of the death that Adam received and experienced. In Ephesians 2.1, Paul describes the condition of the unregenerate as being dead in trespasses and sins. And we can't exclude this from what God is threatening here, the worst form of death. It's that death of separation from God. And unless the sinner repents and believes the gospel, there is eventually even a third form of death, judicial death, eternal separation from God. And this ultimate form of death is symbolized in the expulsion of Adam and Eve from Eden. A death that meant expulsion from God's favor and God's fellowship. And according to scripture, the essence of death is separation. Whether it's separation of the soul from the body or separation of the sinner from God. And so what is the death that is being spoken of here? Well, what this death is, I think, is applied from its opposite. When we remember what we fell from, Adam was a happy man. It was full of delight and pleasure where he had been. God walked with him in the cool of the day. His body and his soul, you see, life reigned there. He had fellowship, a living fellowship with the living God. And so death, you see, was the removal of all that. It's become a terror, you see. There, there is, as it were, even in our bodies, you see, the seeds of death. But there is in our souls the curse of God. And because of this, under this threat of death that has come upon all of us, we've been excluded from the tree of life, excluded from the fountain of life, cast down from where we once were, and all the miseries and all the evils that come as a result of our souls being alienated from God, our souls creating in us those nasty words that we say about other people and those, those sinful outbursts that come out in all kinds of different ways. The, the, the life, you see, so to speak, of a man outside of God. This is what happened. It was the most terrible thing that ever happened in the history of the universe. Well, this is what Adam was threatened with. This is what happened when he finally disobeyed. Now, as we close our thoughts on this passage, I want you to notice with me, first of all, here, by way of application, that here is true wisdom. Obeying God is life. Disobeying God is death. The highest joys of fellowship with God and enjoying life to its fullest, it involves in obeying God. The beginning of wisdom, it means fearing God and keeping his commandments. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Ecclesiastes 12.13, hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. True wisdom, you see, it's not going it alone. It's not doing your own thing. The whole world, you see, it joyfully and wholeheartedly joins in with the sentiments of Frank Sinatra when he sings, I did it my way. I made my own truth. I had my truth. I did my own thing. That's what I decided I was going to do, and I'm the hero because of it. It may seem heroic to go it alone, to do it your way. This is what Adam did. This is what destroyed everything. This is what led him to the gates of death. Here is true wisdom to avoid that. And to submit instead and obey to, the, to obey the Lord God. Here's true wisdom then. And here true is true faith. Now think about it. When Adam and Eve were put to the test by Satan's temptation, the tangible presence of God was not there. You remember how later on we read that the Lord came down? And this is speaking by way of metaphor as it were. And we, don't, we have to be careful about how literally... It's not that he had some kind of a body. But we read that God visited them in the cool of the day. Chapter 3 and verse 8. Maybe it's early in the morning. Perhaps 
during the shadows of the evening. But for most of the time, if God did this in the cool of the day, for the most of the day, God even then was asking Adam and Eve to walk by faith and not by sight. And this is what faith is all about. It's living according to God's word. God had given them the word about what they're to do, what they're not to do. And even when God's special presence is not visible, not, not tangible, it's withdrawn. And God would teach us to listen, you see, to his word and to believe it and to act upon it, even when we don't fully see him, even though we don't fully understand. And this is what it is to walk by faith. It's doing what is right when you're looking at your computer screen and nobody else is there in the room. It is doing what's right when you're on the phone with somebody and nobody is listening to this conversation as you speak about a third party. Nobody else is there to hear it except for you and that person you're talking with. Are you going to slander that person? Are you going to gossip about that person? It's restraining your lips, you see, in such an occasion. This is what it is to walk by faith. God always sees us, and we have to, by faith, realize this, and obey him, keep his commandments. And furthermore, finally, here is true life. Listen to Moses' passionate plea as Israel is about to enter the land of Palestine. I call heaven and earth as witness today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life. You catch the urgency of, of the, Moses is coming near to the end of his sermon. He's pressing it home to his hearers. Here's death. Here's life. I've set these before you. Choose life. God is your life. Walking with God is your life. Now with some of you, this may be the answer to the deadness that you're experiencing in your devotions. You're reading God's word, but you're not obeying it. You're walking contrary to what you read. And God wants a relationship with you. But sin raises a barrier between God and, and you. This is what raised, sin raised a barrier between Adam and, and, and Eve and God. And when God came to the garden later on in the cool of the day, it was very evident. God wants to walk with you. And I trust you want to walk with God if you're a true believer. And this is only going to happen when you not only listen as you read God's word in the morning, but you also keep it and obey it. And obviously, meeting with you and with me in the cool of the day is not something that God needs because God is lonely. Within his triune being, he has perfect and blissful fellowship. It's not that he's offended and, you know, is kind of like the little child that didn't get invited to the party and feels all terrible about it and is all upset about it. And he's up there pouting in heaven because you didn't invite him. You didn't. He's just kind of distressed because he's lonely. He wishes you would, you would pay attention. That's not the issue here. He has perfect happiness within himself. He's not depending on you for happiness. And yet at the same time, if you're his child, he loves you. And he wants to have fellowship with you. And this fellowship, it may be enjoyed, you see, as you regularly listen to what he says in his word. But then you put it into practice as you go through the day. But with others of you, it's not just that you're having a little dead period in your life. You're having a dry period, as Christians sometimes speak of it. But you're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're, you're completely dead spiritually. You don't have the life of God dwelling within you. 1 John 5, it says this is the testimony that God has given to us. Etern He's given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12. Adam and Eve tasted death, the death that God threatened if they disobeyed. And all of us have fallen in Adam. We were born dead in our trespasses and sins. But blessed be God, there's one you see that the Father sent into the world who is the bringer of life. This life, therefore, is in his Son, his Son, the Lord Jesus. And like Adam, Jesus was put to the test to see whether he would obey. 
And the test that he endured, it was infinitely greater than the test that Adam endured. Adam sinned in a garden of plenty. Jesus was tested in a wilderness. Adam was tempted to eat a piece of fruit while he's in the garden full of delicious fruit trees all around him. All of them laden with delicious fruit. But Jesus was tempted in the wilderness as he suffered for 40 days and 40 nights without food, starving, about to die. But unlike Adam, Jesus not only listened to the word, he obeyed it. Every time Satan tempted him, it was the word of God that he cited that refuted the temptation. And beyond the wilderness, Jesus lived every second of his life in radical dependence upon God's word. He believed the bare word of God and lived according to that bare word. And not only in the wilderness, but in the Garden of Gethsemane, a very different kind of a garden. Jesus was presented again with the will of God. And during that last great test of his life and his obedience, he was not tested merely about whether or not he would refuse a certain temptation to disobey a certain command in God's word. But it was about whether or not he was going to submit to a greater test, far greater, whether or not he would drink the infinite cup of God's wrath in behalf of his people. That was the test. And it's through this Savior, this one who made the right choice, this one who said, not my will but thine be done, it is through this Savior and through him alone that you can escape eternal death, that you can escape damnation. It is through this one alone, this one who passed the test, this one who has life in himself, it is through him that you may inherit eternal life by believing upon him and trusting in him. I call heaven and earth as witness today against you. I've set before you life and death. Blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you may live. Choose the way of life set forth in God's word. Choose Jesus. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that we have this passage which is on one hand very disturbing to us because we see what's happened but also a passage that we find instructs us greatly and we pray Lord that we would remember very clearly what you set before us in these two verses that we have studied today help us to remember them when we're tempted to sin when we're tempted to disobey and help us to run to the Lord Jesus when we do sin and find forgiveness and find life once again brimming within our hearts. And those that are strangers to this grace, that are dead in trespasses and sins in this room, living in disobedience, oh, may they stay, may they choose life, may they choose by your grace, may they choose the Lord Jesus Christ in whom is life and life eternal. We pray it in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.